This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 88 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel we have Andrew Madsen. Hi from Salt Lake City. James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. Uh, we got some guy on here named Pete Hodgson. Hello from Pleasanton, California. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about uh, open source. This is something that Andrew brought up, talk about creating it, maintaining it, contributing to it, etc. Do you want to give us a little bit of background, Andrew, on why you were sure, talking about so- Yeah, so I have two open source projects that I I think I've picked and talked about. I think we actually did a whole episode about one of them. One is MIK MIDI, and that's an Objective-C library for doing MIDI on OS X and iOS. It's sort of a wrapper for core MIDI, but it also adds a lot of functionality on top of that. And then I also have a open source Mac library called or a serial port that makes using serial ports on the Mac uh, much easier. And lately, those projects have started getting to where they're popular enough that I get a pretty steady stream of people using them. And I get email from people and questions on Stack Overflow and issues on GitHub and that kind of thing. So they've become more of like a real thing that I'm actually maintaining. And I'm just learning a lot about how sort of what it takes to maintain an open source project, because in some ways, it's like maintaining an app. You have to do tech support for people that are using it. People want new features and and you either have to figure out how to add them or try to get contributions from people, um, manage those contributions. And I just thought it would be interesting to talk about and learn from each other about some of these issues. I think I'm getting a lot out of these projects. They're fulfilling in the same way that working on an app is. It's cool to get to work on stuff that other people find useful and interesting and, and helpful. And, and the collaboration with people who know more than you or know different things than you is also pretty valuable because I've, I've learned stuff from people who have contributed. I'm so that, cu- that's my background. I'm kind of curious. Did these uh, projects start out as kind of personal things that you decided to open source or did you start out with the idea of, you know, I need this library and so I'm going to, op- I'm going to create an open source library that does it. In both cases, I did not start out thinking I'm going to create an open source library for ORS serial port. I actually wrote it just for myself, and I I actually wrote it to replace an existing open source project that somebody else wrote that I was using because I I just wanted to address some of the deficiencies and things I didn't like about that project. I wrote it, uh, was using it, and, and I actually didn't even really consider releasing it as open source until probably a year after I wrote it, but decided that other people might find this useful, so cleaned it up a little and released it. With MIK MIDI, there was a little bit more of a, at the very beginning, I thought this is going to be a really good candidate for being a 
a separate library, even if we just share it between our own apps. But really, right when I started, I thought this would be fun to release as open source. So that was basically open source from the beginning, even though that wasn't truly my motivation. Anyway, in both cases, they definitely started out as things that I needed for projects I was working on, and I would not have written them otherwise. Gotcha. So I'm wondering really quickly, when you decided to make them open source, did you change anything on them or did you just open source them as a zero dot whatever kind of beta release or how do you make the transition into open source? Because, you know, as you said, you know, people expect a certain level of stability and support. Yeah, that's actually a really good question, I think. No, I did not just release them just exactly as they already existed in my own projects. And I think some people do that. Like you can find lots of open source projects where Somebody wrote something, they realized it was cool, you know, they wrote it for themselves, they realized it was cool, and they just dumped the code on GitHub. I've done that. And I'm not, yeah, and I'm not saying that's bad, because, I mean, I think that's a perfectly cool thing to do, but if you're sort of trying to make something that people are actually going to use, that's going to get some level of popularity and contributions back, I don't think you're likely to be successful that way, because people want documentation is really the biggest thing, I think. So the really the very first thing I did was I decided I wanted to have everything be 100% documented, like the same way that it would be if it were a, an Apple framework or an, an API. And so that was the big thing is to document everything. You also just really have to be careful that the thing can be used and is useful on its own, right? So that's sort of a architectural level thing. You, if you're going to release something as open source, it kind of needs to be standalone. It can't be all tangled up with the specifics of your app or it's just not going to be useful to other people unless they're writing the exact same app or kind of app as you are. Mm -hmm. But some of that I was already thinking of when I created them because I, I like to write certain parts of my, I, I, you know, I mean, I think that's good code design in general, right? I just have separation of concerns. And so if you've done things well in the beginning, a lot of times you can take a whole piece and open source it and it's useful on its own. James, have you written much open source software? I have not. I, I use it. Generally, I get to the point where I'm creating something, and occasionally I might fork something and make some changes, but I'm not committing that much. You know, I do, generally do client work and convincing them to pay me to give back to the open source generally doesn't go too well. But that leads to the questions. So, Andrew, MIK MIDI, that's based on the work that you've been doing at your, your day job. How did those conversations go? Yeah, that, so MIK MIDI was entirely something for a, a closed source app that we're working on at work. And... The conversation went really well. I brought it up to, I mean, we're a really small company, small team, but I brought it up to my boss and said, I'm writing this MIDI library. It's making our work way easier for what we're doing in Flow, which is the app that it was for. And I think it would be good open source. And I mean, really, the, I, he was very open to it. And he said, yeah, I think that would be really cool. There was some discussion of the fact that Mixed in Key, you know, uses a few open source libraries that other people have written. And we'd like to contribute back to a community that we have benefited from. So it didn't take a lot of convincing. I mean, there was certainly the idea that if if there's anything that's sort of secret sauce-ish, you know, something that really is what makes our app competitive, we don't want to necessarily just give that away. But that's not how the library is, right? So there are there are many things that we do that we kind of wouldn't want to give away. We think they're pretty innovative, but those are implemented at a higher level on top of, of MIK MIDI. So it went really well. The only difficulty, I think, is that it's kind of hard now to say, you know, if I'm working on something else for work, to say, well, I'd like to spend a day on maintaining MIK MIDI just to maintain it, not for us, but for the open source project. And, eh, well, that doesn't really go over as well in terms of spending the development money on things like that. So I, I basically work on it in my spare time now. It, it's mm -hmm. definitely valuable 
you know, to work with companies that understand open source. And even if you're spending some time working on a project and giving it to other people, you know, that can come back too as, you know, goodwill, getting your name out there as, you know, a cool company to work for. So companies do benefit from you know, allowing people to work on open source projects. Yeah, I think we thought that. And, and another thing is we've gotten contributions from people that have, that have turned out to be useful for us. They've improved things for us. So in some sense, I mean, certainly the bulk of the work has been by me and other colleagues at, at Mixed and Key, but we have gotten, I don't want to call it free work, but like we've basically gotten free work from other people that improve what we started with. So you sell to your CFO as this is a way we get other people to do work for us for free. Right. I don't, I don't think, I don't think the numbers really work out, but something like that. And, and that actually sort of brings up a point that there are a lot of big companies that have employees that they pay to work on open source. I mean, I think WebKit at Apple is a, is a good example where many of the contributor, probably most of the contributors to WebKit and other projects like that are employed by big companies and they're being paid to work on stuff that's released to everybody. Yeah. What's your experience been working on open source, Pete? I guess I've had a couple of things that, so I've had the, I've had maybe a, a similar experience to Andrew where we built a tool, uh, as part of some project work. And then we kind of decided it would be use, a useful thing to kind of share with the community. So we wanted to open source it. We had the extra kind of complexity that we were trying to persuade a client to open source code we'd built for them rather than uh, it being kind of code that we own. So I didn't just have to persuade my company. Well, I don't have to persuade Fortworks because we're kind of big fans of open source, but have to persuade my client to give away the code that they paid for us to write for them, uh, which, <laughs> which is a, more of a tricky conversation maybe, but they were um, very open to it, luckily for us. Uh, so we open sourced like this testing tool called Frank, which, uh, which it's fairly popular actually. I mean, it's, it's used by quite a few different companies, which is very satisfying for me. And yeah, I, I think like for me, the interesting thing about, well, one of the interesting side effects of open sourcing is that need to, it actually motivates you to do a better job of writing code. It's kind of like code review or, or pair programming, right? Like it, knowing that other people are going to be possibly looking at this code in, in GitHub or wherever, then definitely kind of motivates you to do a better job of tidying up all the loose ends and not kind of taking any shortcuts. So that's one thing I observed is people tend to do a better job with code that's, even if there's portions of the application that's open source, and portions of the application that's not, I think that the stuff that's open source tends to have a slightly better quality than the stuff that's just used for internal internal use. I, I think you're completely right, Pete. And MIK MIDI for us has been a good example of that. It started out being uh, used in, in the one app that we were developing at the time, but it is now used in, I think, actually four of our apps. And it worked out really, really well. Like it Because yeah. we had done the work to make it really modular and sort of standalone, and there's there's Super a model easy. that um there's a model that quite a few clients that I talk to use or are experimenting with using is this kind of idea of internal open source. So even if they're not quite ready to put their stuff out there on on GitHub, whatever, they they treat their internal software or tools or libraries that they think could be shared by different teams. They kind of treat it as an internal open source community, and they other people on other teams. Uh, they obviously. They do all the stuff that you do with open source, which is actually mostly not about coding. It's about kind of building community and documentation and, you know, all of the boring people stuff. They do the same thing for their internal open source efforts. So they'll, you know, if, if some team has built some library that they think other teams should be using, then they'll kind of write up a really 
compelling kind of web page telling you why it's so cool and they'll go and give demos to people and um, they'll try and get more people using their tool and then uh, once other teams start using their tool then they'll start hopefully kind of contributing back so you get that same kind of benefit that you get with external open source where you spread the, the load of kind of developing code and you get some of the same side effects of people tend to maybe write the internal quality is maybe a little bit better if it's something that people perceive as a shared resource and the fact that you have to generalize stuff to be used in different contexts kind of forces you to make it more modular and more kind of have nicer APIs and nicer abstractions. That's what I've noticed. So you can, you can do it even if you're not willing or even if you can't persuade your company to open source the stuff in the big open source kind of way. You can still do it internally if you, it's particularly that works if you're in a really big company where there's an internal community that could take advantage of, of, of sharing some, some libraries. Yeah, that's a good point. I've client I'm working with now has a number of libraries in a similar situation where it was developed to scratch our own itch, but it's also going to be shared by, you know, three or four different apps plus any more that may come down the line. So you do similar things and make them so it's more modular, like you said. One thing that concerns me and it's kind of a trade off is, you know, you write one thing to scratch your, your particular itch, it's nice and simple, and all of a sudden you're thinking about, oh, how can we do this differently? How can someone else use this? And you get to the, the situations where you're trying to create a butter knife and you end up with a Swiss army knife with like, you know, saws and nail clippers and all sorts of weird things. How do you balance that? That's a really good point. I mean, I, I was actually thinking the same thing is that there is definitely a trade off there where if you've got a tool that's, you know, custom designed for your hand, you can make it, um, you know, a more general purpose tool and other people can use it, but you're probably going to lose some of the ergonomics or some of the simplicity of something that was built solely for the, the single use case. Um, I completely agree. And I think maybe the, the thing here is if you're going to kind of call an open source project yours, maybe it's just me personally, but I feel a lot of ownership over it, sort of like I feel over an app. And I, and I have opinions about the way things should be done, what should be included, what should be left out that kind of thing. But you sort of have to decide up front, you know, what, what that's going to look like. And then particularly if you're getting external contributions, there are sometimes kind of hard decisions to be made about whether yep. you're going to accept a contribution or you, know, you get a contribution and you're like, well, this is really not the way I want to architect this. How do you tell them I want to do this a different way? So a lot of it is sort of a social and almost yep. like managerial. I've definitely observed that same thing with, with my open source thing where there's like one or two questions that come up you know, every six months or so on the mailing list because it's something that seems like a good idea. And I just pretty much philosophically disagree with this idea. And so I got pretty good politely, you know, saying that I'm so excited that these people are using my project and um, it's great that they're thinking of new use cases and blah, blah, blah. However, I don't think this is a good idea for these reasons, blah, 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 blah. And just kind of reiterating it over and over again. And at first I was really nerve, like I was like, I had some sleepless nights almost of like, well, should, should I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this person's right. Should I just, you know, I don't want to turn away a contributor because I don't have that many and blah, blah, blah. But the longer I've been, there's certain things, almost when it is more philosophical than kind of a technical debate, it's easier because it's just like, well, you know, you could be right, I could be right. When it comes down to it, philosophically, I think this is the better way to do things. And, and fair enough, if you, if you don't agree with that, then we can agree to disagree. You know? If only there was some type of feature that allows you to take an open source project and make it your own. Hmm. Oh, you mean like, like forking on GitHub? Fork, wow. Yeah, that's a yeah, good name exists. for it, huh? And I, I've actually, just in the last few 
in the last week or so, I've, I had somebody contribute. Well, contribute is kind of a weird word because he basically sent me a big code dump of everything he had done. Um, <laughs> I gotta love those. You know, in his fork of, of or a serial port. And it was a lot of code. I mean, it was enough that I would like wait until 2.0 or 3.0 to do any of that stuff. But there was some stuff in there that was good, you know, but, and then there was other stuff that I thought, well, no, I don't want to do this. And some stuff that I thought, well, I'd do this a different way, but I, I'm kind of balancing this. Well, I do want to include some of this stuff with, I don't want to include this other stuff, but I don't want to offend the guy because I, I like the contributions. And also there's sort of this danger of if an open source project gets forked too much, you end up with Linux basically, right? Where there are <laughs> a million distros and I what a failure, right? Well, not that Linux is a failure, but it's certainly hard to dive into and figure out which distribution am I supposed to use or whatever. No, definitely. Um, th- you know, I, mean, I don't, I I don't want there to be, in other words, I don't want there to be like four versions of my library that are all subtly different. And this one, this guy's got this one and this. I think Sparkle is an example of that. Sparkle is an open source project for automatic updating on the Mac. And it's mm-hmm. very widely used, but the guy who originally wrote it, it has not maintained it for years. And there's just been this sort of explosion of forks and. There's not really any one official one, and it's pretty hard to... I think that's the the thing that you... I think you hit on the real reason these things happen in almost all cases that I'm aware that I can think of, is it's not normally this big philosophical difference. But sometimes it is this big philosophical difference. But most of the time, those projects where there's like seven competing kind of like latest versions, it's normally the maintainer lost interest or whatever and didn't have a clean handoff to a successor, right? Like, that's where it gets really annoying. Like, GitX is another example of that, where there's, like, four or five different competing kind of heirs to the throne, and there's kind of this power vacuum, right? So everyone's kind of, like, struggling. Well, you know, maybe I'm being a little bit dramatic about it, but there's not a clear kind of canonical source, right? I think that most of the time, whoever is the creator of the library and, and therefore the maintainer or whoever they've passed maintainership onto it's pretty easy for people to know that that's the uh, canonical thing as long as they're responding to the community and, and responding to the community by saying mm-hmm. no we're not going to do this it's a bad idea i think still counts as kind of indicating that the project is alive and has a direction and i think that's what people want it's i don't, I don't think it's actually that common for fork in the pre-github term of uh, sense of the term fork, like actually a competing alternative. That doesn't happen that often, and normally when it does, it's like a big publicly, like a, a big name kind of thing, like like Node.js or whatever. It's not normally, you know, the average open source project. I don't think goes through that mm-hmm. that often. Well, and when just because the communities aren't that big, really. Yeah. Well, you know then, what I mean. Yeah, like for right. for there to be a schism, you need people on either side of the schism. Normally, what it is is it's like everyone's on one side, and one dude is like, well. I'm going to go and make my own version and, you know, nine times out of ten they do for two weeks and then they get bored and go well, off and do something else. And speaking of uh, the Node.js or I've seen other libraries where they effectively fork and uh, what happens is there's usually some kind of uh, differentiating factor in the name. So Node.js, the recent fork is io.js. Um, you know, so they change the name. There's not as much confusion. It's like, look, you can use the one, you can use the other, you can use them both. You know, and so, yeah, I, I think I think you're spot on there. I do want to go back to contributing a little bit, though, before we talk about forking. Are there things in contributions that make you more likely to accept a pull request or <laughs> something, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. 
So I, the example I gave was this guy who gave me a code dump. And when I say a code dump, I mean, I, he literally just attached the source files with his changes, but not, there was no repo involved. And it was like, I, I, I mean, I can't manually merge in your fixes for 10 different things from a single file. Like, it's just not practical. So I actually added a document to the repo saying that if you want to contribute, you really ought to first identify the issue that you're going to fix. And it should not be, I'm going to, do 10 different things all at once. It should be one thing, one bug you want to fix, one feature you want to add. And then do a pull request because the workflow for, you know, the GitHub sort of enforces for contributions actually works really well. You fork the repo that you want to contribute to, to your own account. You make your changes and commit them as well-structured commits. On and a then branch. You, yeah, on a, on a branch. Well, actually, if you fork the repo, you don't have to do it on you, a separate you, branch, right? So the reason I say on a branch is because what a lot of people do when they're new to contributing to open source is they'll do, let's say, two commits to, and then they'll send you a pull request from master, and then they'll work on something else on master. Oh, and yeah. it all gets, it all starts tacking because that pull request isn't a snapshot in time. It's a pointer to the branch, right? So, oh, right, um, right, right. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, I just, I wanted to point it out because I think it's something that I see a lot of kind of first time contributors on GitHub do, not intentionally because it's not very intuitive at all, but it, it catches a lot of people. So that's a good point, Pete. You, you definitely want to make sure that the pull request, which, you know, this includes the issue Pete just brought up, but it should only include your changes in support of, of whatever feature or bug you're implementing, you know, bug fix you're implementing. So you do that and then you submit a pull request and then sort of the typical workflow is maybe the maintainer of the, of the project, they may have some comments or some feedback or some things they'd like to see done differently on the pull request. And so they'll comment on it. And, you know, at that point you can make further changes until they're happy with it, and then the maintainer will accept your pull, merge your pull request into the to the main repo. And it's really sort of that um, making it easy to collaborate and making it easy to sort of comment on and discuss and also view the changes you've made that makes it much easier for a maintainer to really accept your contribution. Because you know, as a maintainer, I'm not going to pull in changes if I can't test them and you know really get a good idea of exactly what's been done, review the code, and particularly I want them separate it out so that I can easily deal with them one chunk at a time. One other thing I want to add to that real quick is that, you know, I've, I've got a few open source libraries out there. Most of them are, are small things. They wrap around an API that hasn't changed in years. So, you know, I don't do a lot of maintenance on them. But when I get pull requests, the other thing is, is if, if the changes, especially from commit to commit, are really small, then it makes it really easy for me to see what changed. And so then I can identify whether or not, you know, you did just what you needed to get just that feature in or whether or not there's some other stuff in there that maybe I don't need or want. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I think a lot of the practices that you kind of learn if you're in a code review organization where you want small focused commits that describe what you're doing and tell a story of kind of the work, it's the same, the same kind of stuff applies if you're contributing to open source, particularly if you're contributing to a popular library because or a popular project, because the smaller the project, the more likely the person who gets the contribution is going to be like, oh, wow, this is awesome. I'm going to spend, you know, I'm willing to spend two hours kind of figuring out what you've done and giving you critique. But if you're trying to contribute to, I don't know, to CocoaPods or to uh, some popular library, then you need to make it easy for the person taking that contribution and you need to make it pretty, you need tests in there so they don't have to manually kind of test your code. They sh- They can look at what Travis or some other CI thing is doing, that that kind of stuff. They want you to add documentation because 
surprisingly enough, there's not like an army of people waiting to document the contribution that you've just made, you know? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think Andrew, the, the point that you made about, I think kind of what you, what you were hinting at is that the, that first pull request is kind of the start of a conversation is a really big one. Cause I think some people, particularly when they're first starting, they kind of feel like I want to do this work, but I don't really know if I should, if, you know, I want to add this feature. I want to f- fix what I think is this bug, but I don't really know whether I should or not. The advice that I've heard people give and I, and I agree with is just do it. Like just do the work, assuming it's not, you know, like a 20 hour endeavor. If it's, you know, if it's a couple of hours of you working on the code, do the work and you're probably going to not do it exactly the way that the, the maintainer wants. But if that's the start of the conversation, it's a, it's a much better conversation, I think, because the person, the, the maintainer of that project knows that you're serious because you've actually put the time in rather than you just saying like, you know what, this would be cool if we had this thing. You'll get a lot more attention from a maintainer if they're busy and a concrete implementation, although if it's your first time contributing, it probably won't be quite the way that the maintainer wants it to be done. It's a really good concrete thing to have a conversation about and talk through what the right way is to do it. Yeah. One other yeah, thing I want to through and- point out as a problem with the big blob things too is that it takes a lot of time to go through it. And open source maintainers usually are doing it in their spare time. And so if you want it to get submitted and it's going to take them six hours to go through all the changes that you made, you know, whether or not they're going to keep it all is, is kind of a separate issue. It makes it hard for them to accept a pull request of that magnitude. So if you can keep it so that it's something they can review in a half hour and then decide whether or not to keep it or give you feedback, then it makes it a lot easier to get those changes in there. Yeah, and absolutely. Small focused is the way to go. And yep. with Git being ubiquitous, there's no excuse to not be able to do it because it's very easy to, I wouldn't say easy, once you learn how to do it, it's a simple process to take a big commit and chuck it down into small things that someone can look at their diff and go, oh, okay, that's cool, and accept it. This goes back to what we started talking about at the very beginning, but speaking about sort of preparing your code for, for open source release, another thing that I've found is just really important is to make it so that somebody who's brand new, and a lot a lot of times the people who are using your open source library, they're not going to know that much about whatever problem it is you've solved, because if they did, they wouldn't be using your open source library, right? They would have already written it themselves. So make it easy for new people to get started. Like mm-hmm. good documentation that tells people exactly how to install the, th- the thing or, you know, add the framework to their project or whatever and start using it is pretty important. Um, and I think the same goes for contributing. I think it's, if you want contributions, make it easy for people to contribute. Tell them what you expect ahead of time. Keep a good, nicely maintained list of issues on GitHub so that if somebody wants to contribute just for the sake of contributing, not because they found a problem themselves, but because they just think it would be a cool thing to do. They can go find some pretty simple bug and get started on it, and the barrier to entry is pretty low. I think that... So, big, big plus one on that. Yeah. I think that part of that as well is in that kind of contributions or contributes... Normally, normally there's like a contributing text file in, in the root of the directory that kind of tells you what to do as a contributor, and good projects will have really nice instructions on what your workflow would be as a as a developer rather than as a user of the app of the the library or whatever and obviously those those are actually quite different use cases so they'll walk you through how to stand up the thing and in some test mode or whatever and they'll explain what tests you should do beforehand and maybe they'll talk through coding conventions they'll explain some of the philosoph- uh, philosophical kind of ideas so that 
you know that, you know, even though you're really into meta programming, the maintainer doesn't like you to do meta programming. So please don't do that. All that kind of stuff is super helpful for lowering the barrier to entry for, for contributions. Right. And on GitHub, if you, if you add a contributing, I think it's contributing dot, dot MD or, you know, a markdown file called contributing. It's sort of just like the readme. GitHub actually looks for that. And then if you click on the pull, if somebody clicks on the pull request button on your repo, or I think also the new issue button, there's actually a little header on the page that says, before you contribute, you should read this and links them to that. So, um, that's all sort of built in and it, it really, uh, it does two things. It helps people get started contributing, but it also will hopefully tend to raise the quality of the contributions that you get as the maintainer. That's cool. I always wondered how that worked. <laughs> I always wondered why, how these magical projects had, uh, had like a special piece of GitHub UI that, that I hadn't seen everywhere. Yep. It's not magic. I just figured that out a week ago, but it's pretty cool. So one thing that I'm wondering about, most of my open source contributions are in the web space, in the Ruby space. Does the contribution experience or whatever change when we're talking about iOS or Mac or, you know, Cocoa? I'm not a Ruby programmer, so maybe I don't know, but I kind of think fundamentally probably no. Having worked in lots of different worlds, I think it's it's pretty similar. The the big difference that I see is you're less likely to have any kind of CI on uh, any kind of continuous integration on a Objective-C project or a Swift project than you are on like a Ruby project, for example, or even a, a Java project, which is kind of frustrating as a as a first time contributor because I'm I'm always really nervous that I'm doing something really stupid <laughs> and tests help with telling me that I'm being stupid. That's one difference, I think. And then I guess the mechanics of kind of CocoaPods is, is assuming you're contributing to a library that uses CocoaPods. The mechanics of contributing of kind of like I don't know, I've always found that quite fiddly. The running like a local kind of version of the CocoaPod for kind of testing the work as you're going, I've always found that kind of clunky, but actually it's kind of clunky in most, you know, the, the equivalent in Ruby Gems is also kind of clunky, so maybe it is pretty similar. I definitely agree with you on that, Pete. If you're using CocoaPods, it's a little bit tricky. I mean, it's, it's, there's plenty of information out there about how to do it, but if you've never done it's one it before, of those take things, some looking. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's one of those things that after you've done it a few times, I imagine it becomes kind of second nature. But the first few times, it's just like, it's very head scratchy. Like, hey, wait, am I supposed to check this out? Or do I change the branch? Where, where does this pod spec go? What do I do here? Yeah, exactly. That actually brings up something I wanted to raise, which is that for iOS and, and Mac projects in particular, I don't really use CocoaPods personally, but I support CocoaPods in my open source projects. And I feel like I get some good benefits out of that. One is that there are a lot of people who do use CocoaPods and they can just install my library really easily with their CocoaPods workflow. But also you get listed on CocoaPods.org. So I think a lot of people go there when they want to try to find a library. So if you're on there, it improves discoverability. And then the other big one is CocoaDocs.org, which is the documentation counterpart to CocoaPods.org. And um, you get this nicely formatted Apple Doc generated HTML documentation for your project, assuming you've put in your documentation comments the right way. And it's on a website that somebody else hosts. It automatically gets scanned for updates and and all that. And you know, like I just link I I just link people to CocoDocs.org if they want to see documentation. And um and it like it's available in Dash without me having to do anything. Dash is a Mac app for viewing documentation. So th- there, there are actually a lot of benefits to supporting 
CocoaPods in your open source project on iOS or Mac. I have also recently started supporting Carthage, which was super easy, much easier than CocoaPods, but that's another discussion. So what's involved with supporting Carthage? To support Carthage, you just need a an Xcode project somewhere in your open source repo that builds a framework. That's that's all. Carthage looks, will find that project and build the framework. I mean, I'm sure there's ways you could fool it and it's still a new project, but I had no problem at all. I just created a folder called Framework Project, put an Xcode project in there that just builds the framework, and Carthage automatically saw it and knows what to do with it. So it was very simple. Oh, very cool. So what other methods are there of distributing, getting things to compile in end-users' applications? You download the zip file, and then you drag it into Xcode. No! And then you, you, record, you record a GIF uh, showing how to drag it into Xcode, and then you put that GIF in the readme. I knew somebody uh, was going to say that. <laughs> well, I think Pete's kind of joking, but at the same time, I do I think... I mean, that used, a- to be, that used to be literally... I remember before CocoaPods, like, readme files that were, like, showing, like, visual step-by-steps of how to get it set up into Xcode, right? That, right. Was, the, that was the norm for a long time. But I, I do think it's probably good to also realize that not everybody is going to use CocoaPods or something like that, because we don't actually have a standard dependency. CocoaPods is the closest we have, but we don't have a standard dependency management system for iOS. Things like adding a framework project, now that we have frameworks on on iOS and we've had them on Mac forever, but that's pretty helpful because then somebody can download your repo, open up the project and hit build. And then they just get this framework that they can drag into their project. And it's, it's pretty simple. I mean, there are obviously you're missing a lot of functionality that a real dependency manager gives you, but the barrier to entry is low. You don't have to install any new tools, etc. With the testing. So Frank, which is the testing tool that I open sourced me and my team open sourced, Wow, almost five years ago now, CocoaPods wasn't around and there was a Ruby component to it anyway. So what we ended up doing was building, there's a way to build like a fake framework for iOS that's actually a static library, but it looks like a framework as far as Xcode is concerned. And so you, we would distribute that as a download and then you could just drag that framework into your Xcode project and it would just kind of work without you actually having to include any source code or anything or, or change your build settings or anything like that. We did that for a while and then eventually we got to the point that I actually scripted modifying someone's Xcode project for them using a couple of Ruby gems. So I'd actually go into your project, insert the, insert the framework in the right place, mess with a couple of compiler flags. It's not a fun thing to do. I don't recommend it. <laughs> wow. Uh, th- that's interesting, though, because it reminded me of something that I've never tried, which is GitHub supports binary releases, I think, right? Where you can yeah. upload a binary. So I think in theory you could upload, when you do a new formal release that's tagged and everything, you could upload the a framework that, that's a binary, and then people don't even have to compile the code if they don't want yeah. to. And that, we did that for a while and then eventually what I discovered was like 90% of the questions and the problems that I had was with the people in the community had was with getting started and figuring out how to, you know, where to download it from and where to drag it into. And so I eventually ended up automating that. But it did, it made me realize that, wow, you know, there's, let's say two people this week have posted on the mailing list asking about this. That probably means that 20 people tried it and just failed and just said, oh, screw this, I'm going to go and use something else instead. So for me, that was like, as a, I guess the, the bigger point there is like, as a, as a maintainer of a library, I would spend way more time 
focusing on the onboarding experience for a new user than I would on the actual functionality because I want, I believe in the value of the thing I'm building and I want more people to get that value. And most of the time, the thing that's stopping them from using the thing isn't the functionality, it's that barrier to entry of getting set up with the project. So the, the easier you can, the more compelling you can make the onboarding experience, the more likely it is that someone's going to use your tool and get value out of, out of using it. And then I get more stars on GitHub and my ego swells, so that's good for me too. <laughs> How many points in life are GitHub stars worth? Well, they get like, uh, there's, if you guys ever seen Codawall, the, it was kind of popular for a while and then it kind of died off. There was this Codawall thing where you would get badges for different things that you did on GitHub and, there was like a badge that you could get for a thousand stars on GitHub, and I I coveted that badge quite shamefully. Did you get it? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty eventually. Cool. Took, I, took I, me a few years. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a thousand star badge. So the I also had the advantage that this was back in the day when the only way you could kind of indicate interest in a project was to star it. Now there's like GitHub has the watching and the starring. And so I think maybe to nowadays I would have a hard time reaching, you know, getting my ego swelled that way. So that's Although, people that I, I, want to watch in a repository but don't like it. I just want to see it Yeah, fail. exactly. Exactly. They're just like, I want to see this thing. I'm skeptical. I just, let's, let's see how this thing works out. I'll give them six months. Well, I'm, I'm about to completely, um, show that I'm a hypocrite, but I think it, I think it's, you know, don't get too caught up in stars. It's not really a, exactly a popularity contest, nah, right? I, that, at the same time, I, I check my stars and I get a lot of email from people who are using the library that have questions about it or whatever and, and they're not in the starred list. So, you know, it's obviously some su- pretty, probably pretty small subset of people who are actually finding your library valuable that think to star it. And then again, there are probably people who, you know, I'm sure there are people who run across it. They're like, Oh, this might be cool. And they star it, but they're never going to use it. So yeah. there's, it's sort of a meaningless fake internet points kind of number. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, I mean, I was being, I, I was obviously being a little bit facetious with the ego thing, but it is actually, it is pretty relevant, right? Because A, the reason most people are doing open source, not because they're being paid for it. They're doing it in their spare time. They're, they're going over and above their normal coding life to build something for other people as well as themselves. And the flip side of that is very, I can say for me personally, it's super satisfying just to find out that someone is using this thing I built. And then when you get someone send an email saying, Hey, thanks. This is a cool tool. It's like, it's like the best email you'll receive that week, you know? So. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yep. So, and I, I think getting some visibility into that is actually really helpful in motivating you to keep putting in those extra hours and to do all of the really boring, crappy parts of maintaining open source. Like, I don't know, like writing documentation and replying to stupid questions on the mailing list or all the kind of stuff that that's kind of thankless. You get fuel for that by seeing that people are actually using the, the thing that you built and getting value out of it. Mm-hmm. I, I actually ask in my readme, I say, um, I want to hear about cool stuff that you're using this in both of these projects we've been talking about. And I get cool emails, you know, like I remember one of the very first emails I got when I released or a serial port was from a guy that was using it to build a kegerator for the office with a, I don't remember exactly <laughs> what he was doing, but you know, it had a Mac app to, to control the kegerator that he was building with an Arduino and, you know, or like a guy that's using it for the Pinewood Derby timing system he's building for his local Boy Scout troop. And I'm kind of lucky. That's in awesome. My, my project's sort of a nerd friendly thing like that. But uh, yeah, it's pretty fulfilling to see this stuff that 
you sort of had some small hand in making possible. Yeah, I wish the MIDI project had, was used for the kegerator. I would play like the beer barrel hole or something. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> there you Me go. too. <laughs> How do you know if you have a good candidate for an open source project? You know, if you've written some code, how do you identify that, you know, oh, this piece would make a really handy open source library? I think that the answer to that question is actually in many ways similar to the, the way you know that you have a good idea for an app. Mm-hmm. So it may be that there, there are already open source libraries out there that sort of do, you know, are sort of tackling the same problem, but you don't exactly like the way they're done or you see deficiencies or... Um, I think for a lot of open source projects, those deficiencies may not even be technical so much as they are a lot of these things that we've just been talking about where they're not well maintained, they're not documented, they're not being actively contributed to. So, so there's that. And there's also certainly the case though where you just write something and then, you know, you're like, well, that, that was cool and useful and I'm just going to see what happens. I don't think you need to be overly concerned with whether it's going to be popular or not if you're doing it mostly for fun. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with they- doing something, throwing it out there, you know. This might be useful. We'll see. I think it it kind of depends to an extent whether you want to just throw it out there and kind of make it, put it out there in case someone wants to use it. If you want people to use it, if you feel like this is something that other people would find valuable, I want other people to use it, right? Because if the in the former case of just, you know, I've built this thing and I, I think maybe someone could make use of it, I'll put it on GitHub, that's pretty low that's like you don't really need to need to answer that question of will people use it. You just put it up there and see if people use it or not. Just stick a license on it and, and you're done. But I think if you if you're building something and you and you want people to use it, then as your point of it being like an app is is really good. Like it is like a product that you're marketing to people, and you need to look at the market and see if if people you know see if there's a product market fit and all that kind of stuff. And if you're serious about wanting people to use it you do need to treat it as a marketing effort you know write good documentation and figure out how to engage with your users on stack overflow and twitter and all that all that kind of stuff it sounds really stupid but i actually think it's what makes open source successful is it needs to be a good product but or it needs to be a good library but most of the time the 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 thing that makes something successful or not successful is totally nothing to do with the technology in my opinion which is i don't know maybe a bit of a cynical thing to say but you know if two different libraries if uh facebook open sourced a library for data binding in ios and then some other startup open sourced it and they were both exactly the same i can imagine which one is going to become popular yeah, exactly right. I, I think which is this marketing, I mean, marketing is a funny word because you're not selling it, but this marketing of uh, your open source projects, it's it's really quite similar in many ways to doing the same with an app. I mean, you have tech support that you have to do. You have new features you have to add. People report bugs. Um, it's, it's very similar. Yeah, one, one other thing that I've noticed as far as uh, choosing an open source project in the first place is just, if I've written the code in one place and then I wish I had it in another project, then I start looking at extracting it from the one so that I can use it everywhere. I was going to ask about like an open source app because I've seen those in the past where somebody has written an entire iOS app and they open source the thing so you can go find the source on GitHub. How is the conversation different on those, do you think? So I, that's actually a really interesting question. I've seen these too. I think the motivation is most often going to be kind of completely different from a library mm-hmm. because with a library, people download your library to use it in their own app that is probably completely different than whatever you used it for. You can't really do that with a whole app, right? Unless I can think of some, right. I, I guess you could think of some specific niches where maybe you release a, you know, an app for 
dentist's office or something. And, and the, the goal is that the dentist's office developer can download it and change a few things and, and have a custom version of it or whatever. I don't know if that's ever really been done successfully, but you can sort of imagine it. But I think a lot of times those open source apps are the motivation is to get people contribute, but maybe even more is to sort of release it as a teaching tool. So yep. somewhere people can go yeah. to look at how things should be done. I yeah, don't know. Or it's, or it's used know. to, it's used to demonstrate how to integrate with some, uh, SaaS product or something mm-hmm. like that, right? Yeah, like right, I'm sure right, there's, right. I'm sure PARS have written a few open source apps that show how you build an app that uses PARS, for example. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of, it kind of depresses me a little bit that there isn't that much of a, like the, the open source, I guess actually, I was going to say that the Objective-C or the iOS community doesn't have much of a tradition of, of open source applications rather than libraries but now that i think about it really neither does the web community the 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 kind of the linux community they're really the only people that open source user-facing stuff very seriously like most of the applications i think of that i use on a regular basis either web apps or apps on my phone uh, are closed source which is kind of sad actually yeah i think partly that may be driven by the app store culture i think because you certainly can release an open source app on the app store, like, you know, under your own name and, and even sell it if you want to, but somebody can't really download your open source app from GitHub and easily get it onto their phone unless they're a developer. And even then it's kind of this weird workflow, right? And I, and I think the situation's a little bit better on the Mac. This whole discussion though of open source apps reminds me of something regarding open source libraries that I think is really valuable, which is to include sample code. So include small apps or whatever that use the library so somebody can look at code that works that uses your library. Yeah, I think that's really a good way of testing it as well. Speaking about example projects, I have a an example project in or a serial port that is just a simple serial terminal. So it's it you know lets you open up a port, see data coming in, send data out. And I I completely wrote it as as just an example app like I this is how you can use the library. It shows off some of the cool features of it. Um, makes it so I can test new features, that kind of thing. But I get a, a surprising amount of email from people who download the repo and it's actually that app that they want. They're using the app, not, they're not using the code. They're not modifying the app. They're just using the app for what it, what it does. So I, I don't, I don't exactly know why that is. It's not the only one out there that does that, but it does surprise me. Cause yours is the coolest. No, it's actually pretty lame. It's all default UI and you know, I didn't write it to be pretty. So I don't know. Uh. So I've got one thing that's been running around in my head as we've been talking about this, particularly with libraries, is is kind of versioning and maintaining compatibility. Because so, this is something that the average developer, I actually don't think you have to deal with this that often as the producer of an API. Like, you know, how do I not break stuff every time I ship a new version? And we're, we're, we're kind of used to be able to just change the implementation and then change the code can consuming that library and, and, and we're done and we move on to the next commit. But when you've got people using your code in ways that you don't even know, versioning becomes like a total pain in the in the behind, I would I would imagine. Have you run into that, Andrew? Uh, absolutely. So there's this um I think probably a lot of people are familiar with it, but there's this concept called semantic versioning. I'll have to find the original it's a blog post, I think, about it in the and to put it in the show notes. But anyway, this the the idea is that you you version your library with version numbers that are actually meaningful. So they're 
usually there are three. There's a major version, sort of a minor version, and then a point version. I don't know what they're called. I can't remember. But if you're going to make breaking API, ch- you, you only make breaking API changes so that those are changes that require users of the library to update their code uh, in major, major releases. So like going from a 1.0 to a 2.0. If it's the la- only the last point that changes, you need to make sure that, you know, that those are for like bug fixes or really minor new features that are not going to break anybody's existing code. They're not going to change the way the library works. But you certainly have to be really conscious of that when you're developing the library because you're you're com- completely right. It's not just you anymore. You can't just arbitrarily change the name of a method or change the way it does something, you know, and you even have to be careful about things like side effects or timing because you kind of never know what weird thing somebody's going to be using your code for and you don't even know anything about it. Yeah. It's the exact same problem that Apple has really with versioning Coco, you know, they can, you can deprecate things, but you can't really just pull them out right away. And, or if you do, you have to be very clear about communicating that to your users. And the thing that becomes really tricky is when it's not a syntactic change, it's a semantic change, right? So the way that your code works means that method A is called before method B and someone has somehow managed to depend on, on that behavior, that internal behavior of the application and then you accidentally change that ordering or you intentionally change it and it breaks stuff. And it's like, well, was that part of the API? Was that part of my contract that I was supposed to do things that way? And maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. And, or maybe you know that it was, but how do you keeping track of those uh, semantic changes to the way your library does things is, is a real headache, I think. Um, and it's something that we don't run into when we're just developing private APIs for ourselves, not for the world. Right. So the syntax level changes or, you know, like, like naming changes that those are actually the easy things because just don't do any of that, right? Just don't change method names and you're fine. But semantic stuff can be quite a bit more, uh, the kind of things you're talking about can be quite a bit more difficult. But I, I think, I do think you have some leeway. I mean, it's an open source project. It's not a platform API. And as long as you communicate well and sort of give users an out, right? So they're not forced to update to the newest version. I think you can yeah. deal with it. And right? you can do the and you can kind of do the deprecation thing as well, where if you if you find a typo in the method name or something, then you can make a new method name that doesn't have that typo and then mark the old one as deprecated. Actually, does Objective C have like a mechanism for marking a method as deprecated? I must do because Apple must do this all the time. Yeah, there's a LLVM attribute. For, okay. for deprecated. I think there's actually a pound defined for it. It's ns underscore deprecated, something like that. You just, you can annotate your method declarations with that and then Xcode will throw up the usual deprecation warning. But uh, another thing I've done, like there's actually a feature in MIK MIDI that, that was there from the very start and at some point, and we were using it in our app and, and at some point I just realized that it was actually that whole feature that I had written was a stupid idea. I mean, the functionality was nice, but it basically had a severe performance problem. And it just didn't scale well. And I, I decided I just didn't want it in there anymore and I didn't want to support it, but I couldn't full on pull it out because I'm sure people were using it. So I now log a message, right? This has been deprecated. The first time somebody calls the method in their app, I, I log a message that they're using a deprecated API and it will still work, but they future probably should, yeah, yeah, they should migrate away from it. And I think I even say, and like, here's the alternative, you know, this is what you should do instead. And Apple does that kind of thing too sometimes. Apple, the source of truth and light. We love Uh, them. Yeah, right. I'll be honest with a lot of my open source stuff, because 
I know that it doesn't have a huge kind of user base, and because my nature is I'm a little bit of a cowboy, to be honest, uh, a lot of times I'll abuse the Dash pre-release thing that, that kind of Semver defines. So I don't know if this works in CocoaPods, but in Ruby Gems you can kind of release a kind of a pre-release of the of the changes, and I will just float those out there and ask people to download it and try it out and see if it's broken anything and uh, let that kind of bake for a week or so. And if I don't get any complaints, then I'll bump the remove the pre thing, and, and then that's my new that's my new version, which is totally unprofessional to be honest, but hasn't got me in too much trouble so far. I think if you have a really active project with a lot of contributions, you know, a really healthy project, this problem becomes somewhat easier because you you may work on a a major new release in a branch for a long time and there are a whole lot of eyes on it and you know people sort of know about it and I'm thinking of like CocoaPods or AF networking like CocoaPods has been working on Swift support lately and they now have a pre-release branch with Swift support and you know they've announced it and I know a lot of people are using it so it, you really can kind of do the the same kind of beta test cycle that you would do with a with an app but I think that's a little more difficult when your library is small and there are people using it but not thousands of people using it or anything yeah that's true and it's kind of like you know facebook can test in prod easily because when they screw up there's 10 bazillion people discovering their screw up but if you're uh yeah they find it fast and can roll it back easily yeah hopefully yeah if you're managing your local church's website then you're less likely to be able to test in prod <laughs> although you probably do test in prod more often because right because the impact is smaller works. Yeah. yeah, with that website, you're coding in Prod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's because Prod is your laptop plugged into uh, to an Ethernet cable somewhere. Just put on the cowboy hat and go to town. <laughs> pew pew pew! Yeehaw! <laughs> nice. So the only other thing I have is uh, testing your library. I'm assuming that you just when you distribute it, the the tests are just kind of around, but it doesn't impact anything when people include it. Yeah, this is um, something I'm pretty bad at. For a couple reasons. One is that I'm just not that good at unit testing in general, but the other problem is that both of the libraries that I have that we've been talking about, MIK Midian or a serial port, those are all really all built around talking to external devices. And so that's sort of hard to test. Like OR serial port is a wrapper for the IO kit stuff that actually talks to serial port hardware. So I'm sure there's there's ways to deal with that, but it's not my area of expertise, and I must admit to not having done it. So I actually use the example projects as my test beds, and I generally you know have to do a lot of manual testing where I have them hooked up to real hardware. I do have some for the applic one of the applications that I use that library in. I do actually have a very full featured test rig that is an application that mimics the hardware that the app talks to, right? So that way I can test that, but it it does require me to have this separate app running. It's not like a just compile time unit test kind of thing. I think Pete's right, though, that con the continuous integration and test culture on iOS is just really not that well developed for various reasons. Pete, do you know any... So I, th it seems like I've worked on, well, particularly on CocoaPods, when you, back when they had the GitHub specs repo. If you made a specs update, they would run a Travis job and your thing would have to pass a bunch of tests before they would accept the pull request. Do you know anything about setting that up so you can actually have a yeah, it's, CI it's and actually, test run? It's pretty straight. Like Travis has supported iOS, well, Xcode projects for a while and you, you set up Travis. It's actually not that much more complicated than 
and setting it up for like a, a Ruby project or a Java or .NET or well, not for .NET, but yeah, it's it's pretty straightforward. And and you just kind of say, just like you write a, a Bash script on your local system that runs all the tests and and kind of returns the right exit code. You just do the same thing, and then Travis just kind of magically hooks into your GitHub repo and will write those. You know, will add the kind of information to the pull request. And what's golden about Travis and why I think it it took off so well is, uh, or why people love it so much is it will do that CI on every pull request. So like you said, for, for CocoaPods, when they get a pull request come in, uh, or when anyone who has Travis set up gets a pull request come in, Travis will take the, the code in that pull request and, and run whatever you've told it to run on a machine somewhere in the cloud. So I think it really, CI really comes into its own, or tests in general, really come into test automation, really comes onto, into its own with these kind of projects where you don't want to have to manually be verifying someone who you don't know at all, right? Like the first time someone contributes to your project, you have no idea whether they're like the next Linus Torvalds or like a barely competent developer and, and having the gate be an automated gate. So it just kind of says like these tests are passing or these tests are failing and have that right there in the GitHub UI is is super useful. Totally worth the effort to do, even if it's just a... So the minimum bar, which I think depressingly is actually quite useful sometimes, is just does this thing compile in all of the different ways in which you want to compile it? Like, does it compile for iOS and OS X? Because Frank has an OS X port, it needs to compile in both those kind of modes. And just checking to see whether it compiles would actually... I, I'm of course saying this, I actually haven't set this up, but it's actually, it should be really easy to just have Travis do that check for you and give that fast feedback to a contributor so that as soon as they send in the pull request, within a, a few minutes, they'll know like, oh, look at that. I guess I have to make it pass in OSX as well. I'll go back and, and change things. It's pretty straightforward to get it set up. It's worth doing. Yeah, I've seen people do that with other CI systems too. Yeah. Of course, the uh, the Fortworks uh, Snap CI system uh, also has all of these features and is available for free use for open source projects. I had to do that plug, sorry. No, it's fine. They're a sponsor of the Ruby Rogues podcast, so... Oh, yeah, there you go. All right. Well, anything else, or should we do some picks? I don't have anything. All right. Let us picks. So I got a couple of things that I can talk about real quick. The first one, I picked this on the other shows, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's called Desk Time. And this is something that Mike Hostetler, I talked to him on Monday for the Freelancer Show. He kind of turned me out of this. And uh, what it is, is it's a way of tracking your time. Now, not like for your clients tracking your time, if you're a freelancer or whatever, and you're tracking hours, but instead, it, it just tracks your time in general. So it tells you, you spent an hour on YouTube, and you know you spent an hour in Gmail, and a half hour you know, in Xcode and, you know, whatever. And it kind of gives you an idea of where you're spending your time. And then you can decide, okay, you know, I need to spend a little bit more time working on these things and a little less time working on these other things and a lot less time playing World of Warcraft or whatever. So I've been using it for a few days. I'm really liking it. And I can designate things as productive or non-productive and then, you know, work that out so that I can see where my time is going and then make sure I'm spending it on the highest priority stuff. And I think that's it for me. Jane, do you have a pick? Yeah, I'll make one pick. So there's been a library I've been using over the past few weeks. I've been doing mostly Swift code for the past month or so. If you do any network stuff in Swift, you know that getting JSON into an object is kind of a pain. So there's one library I've been using and been pretty happy with because it's kind of the if-let going from optionals to non-optionals. 
it's kind of a pain. But Swifty JSON is a really cool library that I've been liking that helps you avoid a lot of that dance. You know, having eight if lets deep into your code. So I'm gonna make my pick as Swifty JSON. Available CocoaPod. Actually, I don't, I don't know if it's CocoaPod. It's Swift only, but it is on Carthage. Awesome. And probably on CocoaPod soon. Yeah, their CocoaPod Swift support is in pre-release now, so if it's not there now, it should be soon, I would think. Okay, Andrew, you have a pick for us? Not exactly. I I I came up with a pick, and then I searched through our picks, and I already picked it, but it was a long time ago, so I guess I'll pick it again. Yeah. Um, it's an app called. Uh, well, it's it's actually a pair of apps that are next to each other in my dock that I use fairly often. They both share really colorful, terrible icons, and they're both not exactly very polished, but they're still useful enough that I use them often and keep them in my dock. And the first one is called Coco Color. So this is just a little Mac app that got a bunch of different ways to pick colors. You know, you can use the color picker. It's got hue, saturation, and brightness sliders, etc. And it'll just copy the code for UI color or NS color or CG color to your clipboard so you can you know easily add the right colors to your code. I think it'll it'll also do CSS and that kind of thing. And it, it has support for gradients too. So you can, if you're on the Mac, there's a class called NS Gradient. Um, on iOS, there's CG Gradient, so it'll generate those too. Pretty cool and pretty useful when I'm doing custom UI stuff and need to work with colors in code. The other one is called Unretner, and it's got a bad name, but this is just a super simple app where you can drop an at 2x ping onto it and it will scale it down and create the non-retina version for you and so a lot of times when I'm working on a app interface I've got the retina assets and you know every time I up make a tweak to an image I need to create the non-retina version too and this just makes it really easy to do that so those are my picks very nice Pete do you have some picks for us I do so the first pick I'm going to make is a conference talk uh, called The Social Coding Contract uh, from a guy called Justin Searles. I'm picking this despite not actually having watched it all the way through because uh, I've been to a couple of other talks from Justin Searles. He's a very smart guy and very interesting guy, um, has some interesting ideas. And the topic of the talk is relevant. It's about open source and how the social aspects of open source and kind of so so i think it's probably worth a watch i'm going to do some self-serving picks uh some open source libraries that i maintain the first is a gem a ruby gem called microstatic and it's just a really easy way of deploying static websites to s3 buckets amazon s3 buckets if you want to host a website and you don't want to pay money for it the tenuous connection to an ios podcast is if you have an ios open source project and you want to build a website and you want to deploy that website somewhere then you could use this open source product to do that (laughs) so (laughs) microstatic i'll pick frank which is my testing tool because we've been talking about it a lot other testing tools are available i have a preference for this one because i built it and then the last thing I'm going to pick is three things, post-it notes, index cards, and Sharpies. Uh, if you've ever worked with thought workers on a project, you know that we're obsessed with these things. Just recently, I was like had like two days of kind of brainstorming sessions with a, with a team of people, and it is just amazing how much more effective you are at thinking when you're moving physical things around and you're looking at physical things on a table or, or, or on a wall. So if you're having to be creative and think about things in trying to kick yourself out of a rut, then get out of your seat, write some stuff with Sharpies, and kind of uh, maybe come up with some new ideas. Those are my picks. Can I amend one of my picks? Mm-hmm. 
So I didn't realize this when I picked it, but on Retner, the the second app I picked, I just looked and it's actually open source. And I didn't know that at all, but we talked about there not being that many open source apps. It's a Mac app, but it's on the Mac app store, but it's also on GitHub. And it seems like there's actually a pretty healthy level of people forking it to add new features. And uh, there's a bunch of different versions of it, but that's just a cool example of a of an open source app that's also useful and on the app store. That's Unretner. Awesome. All right. Well, I just want to throw out a big thanks to you guys for coming. And uh, we'll wrap up the show. We'll catch you next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash forum. 